Hey, Womance listeners, Isabeau here. And if you love Womance and you love what we do, would you do me a huge favor and click subscribe on your favorite podcasting app? And if you have just that extra second, would you go ahead and give us a rating as well? Ratings and subscriptions help keep this podcast going, lets other people know where we are, lets other people in on the delicious secret that is Womance and Romance in general. And more than that, don't keep us a secret. Tell your friends, tell your mom, tell her about the juicy bits, but, you know, let her discover the details. Because romance and womance is all about discovery. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you. Try testing it again. Testing. Testing. It's not moving. Hmm. Mm. I've been a little burpy baby lately. Yeah, try that again. Okay. This is Morgan Lott, and you're listening to All Things Considered on NPR News. Shuffle paper, shuffle paper. So what else are you reading right now? Ooh, I did want to talk to you about this. Facebook finally convinced me to try Choices, the game, because they had a romance option, and I wanted to see what a Choices game about romance fiction could be like. What's the Choices game? I don't know about this. Oh, so... On the ads on Facebook, they're like, oh, has anybody seen my fiancé? I can't find him anywhere. And then you have a choice to open a door. And then you, like, in the ad, you open the door and your fiancé is clasped in the arms of another woman. And then it's like the choice that you then have is to forgive him or go to the airport with the best man. So then in the ad, she chooses to go to the airport with the best man. And then the fiancé shows up. And then, like, the next choice is do you forgive him or no, he's a lying cheater. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying it. So it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, a digital, more adult, kind of explicit at times, oh, choose-your-own-adventure. And the one that I chose was called The Royal Romance because it was free. <laughs> and the the gimmick is that you are a waitress in New York City and a bunch of rude, loud, posh dudes show up. Uh-huh. And, like, you go through the choices of, like, whether or not to be rude to them and, like, whatever. And one of them turns out to be the Prince of Cordovia. Oh, sure. And then your next big choice is whether or not you leave with them for this whole, like, bachelor-style scene to to get the prince married, or if you stay in your little life in New York. Okay. So I chose to go to Cordovia. Okay. And I don't trust anyone. And they're trying to get me to like this guy Drake, but I'm like, I'm staying true to the prince. And then of course they introduce like all of these other like batshit crazy like women who you're supposed to hate and like there's no choice to befriend them. <laughs> so like the gender politics of this isn't great, but like it's it's fun. Is it like a book? like the worst kind of trash it's like us magazine uh-huh but like choose your own adventure but you like read it yeah and like make choices at like every like halfway through the chapter which so then it is choose your own adventure. totally and like you it asks you at the end of every chapter if you want to go back and play it differently <laughs> which always makes me feel like i question my choices i always wish buzzfeed quizzes had a feature where you could see the other possible outcomes mm, mm-hmm. it's like that i wish you could do that i don't know well, I'm reading Boss by Mike Royko. What's that? It's about uh, the first Mayor Daly of Chicago. Oh, I, that's amazing. It's really chatty and fun. And then I'm reading The Wonder by Emma Donahue. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm like 10% more sophisticated than you. Oh, I would like everyone to know I am also reading a book called The Victim of Prejudice and Jamaica Kincaid right now. So like, I'm not just playing romance. Liar! <laughs> God. 
Also, why are you shaming me for my yums here? <laughs> why am I yucking your yeah, yums? Yeah, why are you yucking my yums? Rude. I don't know. I guess it's just because... Like whenever you're a better person, you're not you a have better. to show the other nope. people. That's the not how way that works. That's not how that example. works. That's you're gonna go home and play choice tonight, and you're gonna get addicted. <laughs> FYI, I'll probably just go home tonight and watch the series Bridget and Amen again, which is like my most watched series on Amazon. That's weird. Which is incredible because the wonderful Mrs. Meisel was mm. like made for me. It's so good. Also, have you watched Friday Fisher's Diaries or Murder Mysteries? Oh yeah, I watched the first episode. Fucking go back and watch that. Right I'm gonna do it. I don't know what you want from me. You should watch it. If you like Miss Maisel, you would like Franny. We are at like peak TV right now. Like I keep thinking there's no way we could have more good TV and then it shows up. It's true. Or more bad TV. Oh, I guess we better do the show. Ready? Mm-hmm. <sighs> <sighs> Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance. Bodice busters. Whales, I guess. Sometimes, certainly. I love whales. <laughs> the creature. Of or the, the nation. <laughs> Stays. It's about redheaded gentlemen. It's about loss of fortune. It's about your brother who lives in a cottage and you don't really know what to make of that. And lastly, perhaps most importantly, it's about happy endings that don't end on your face. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're talking about Grace Burroughs' newest book. Ooh, No Other Duke Will Do. I really, really enjoy Grace Burroughs as a writer. I encountered her in this beautiful novellas, which we will have to talk about at a later date of romance, but I was really excited to see that she'd come out with something new. Um, Her other books weren't that interesting to me. She's done a series of strange Scotland adventures that I think were a little ho-hum, but she's back in form in Regent Sierra, which I think (laughs) she's just really great at. Um, Anyway, so I asked... Morgan to read it, and she's going to give us the synopsis. Oh, yeah. So I didn't, I, I said, woo, because, I mean, I did read the book. I'm not surprised that this is our book that we're talking about, but I'm surprised that it's her newest book. Every time I read these books, I feel like they've been around forever. And I don't know if that speaks to a timelessness or just, like, my own sense of unstuckness in this particular genre. I think it's both. I think that's one of the weird things about the genre where they feel, like, atemporal, where they exist both out of time and any time. Yeah. It's true. So this is a book about a woman from a really well-to-do, well-heeled family going Mm -hmm. to a house party in Wales, Mm -hmm. hosted by a much less well-to-do, but Mm -hmm. no less titled, aristocratic family. And guess what? She falls in love with the Duke. Imagine that, listeners. Julian Haverford. I think he's got red hair. I think it says that. But, like, all of his family fortune is in this, like, enormous library of rare books. Yes. Which is the sexiest way to store your fortune. But he's really resentful of it. He's in a lot of debt. He can't get his sister married off because he can't afford a dowry. He keeps giving shit away for her dowry. He wants to keep the mines out of his town in Wales. And he's basically the villain from Footloose, except instead of dancing, it's mining. And the kids just want to get in there and get the coal out of the ground. The kids being the nouveau riche I mean the villain. Ki- no, I mean children. I mean, <laughs> I mean under the age of dead. We're growing <laughs> out for work, my sister. It's interesting to me that you want to immediately go to the workers' rights part of this. 
<laughs> we shall overcome. Um, what was what was one of the things that I find that I found striking about this particular work is uh. that one of the reasons that Julian Haverford doesn't want the mines in Wales is because he's seen what they've done in other places, mm-hmm. and he's seen the children particularly working yeah. for slave wages, uh-huh. and like the families are well, all dying of slave black wages, lung. right? Anyway. <laughs> The not that I'm like washing away hundreds of years of systemic oppression of slavery, but in this case, yes, for non living, non livable wages. wages. And what's weird about romance novels in this particular moment when you have a down on his luck duke who starts arguing about the livable wages of the poor, part of me is like, that ain't so. <laughs> Yeah. That ain't true. Yeah, well, the book also makes the point because he has a uh, he has a nemesis whose greatest sin is to be nouveau riche, mm-hmm. and uh, he talks about the hypocrisy of the aristocracy, how they like try to pass laws to prevent you know things like child labor, or they like tut tut at it, but they actually own all of these mines and are profiting a great deal from non livable wages being right. paid to children and women who were paid less than men because right. their labor was considered less worthwhile. Right. Yeah. So. So in that way, like this book is speaking to a past that didn't exist uh-huh. and a moment that we're currently in. And I think mm-hmm. modern historical romances do this a lot. And mm-hmm. when it happens, it can be really jarring. And I think mm-hmm. in moments, this like this book wasn't as careful as it maybe could have been. But I think like there's something really interesting about this idea of like modernity, mm-hmm. right? Because like so much of what Julian Haverford and his crumbling castle that was built at the time of Henry V, like represents is like an old landed aristocracy that in 1815 is under siege Mm -hmm. by modernity and people like Lucas Sheffield who represents this nouveau riche class of merchants and shopkeepers Mm -hmm. who are like really coming into their own through the mechanization of Britain. Do you think this book is nostalgic for the aristocracy or do you think it's kind of like I feel like there's part of the perspective of this novel that is very much like good riddance to the aristocracy but a great deal of it also strikes me as like very nostalgic and very harrowizing of the title which is not uncommon no but it is uncommon for them to present this other perspective however like terrible the character is of um what's his name lucas sherborne we write this shit down before we record by the way because we're so bad at knowing what it is and we don't want nick to spend hours piecing (laughs) together Thank you, Nick. (laughs) Thanks, Nick. These, like, long, protracted silences where we're just murmuring and looking through our Kindles. Anyways, the Lucas Sherborne, like, I mean, the book obviously wants us to dislike him, but Mm -hmm. I'm like, he makes a lot of good points. He makes a lot of excellent points. Really good points. What's weird about it is, like, I think you're right. I think it's lionizing uh, Mm -hmm. nostalgia for a past that, like, A, never existed, but B, like, it's talking about, like, honor and noblesse oblige, and, like, part of the thing that Sherborne hates and what we're meant to understand about him being, like, sort of grubby is that, like, he doesn't understand how honor works. And that, like, you wouldn't call a man to account on his debts in his own house. And 
You wouldn't like, even though he's up to his eyeballs in debts that Sherborne owns at his own ball, no less. At his own ball, that like Sherborne paid for. Totally, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Sherborne paid for all of that. Like the way in which this book is dealing with paradox is really interesting, and I think like it's also maybe the first romance novel that we've read for the podcast, certainly, but maybe one that I've read that deals so explicitly with this question of modernity. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. This discussion of the problem of modernity is brought to you by Cupcake Vineyards. (laughs) They're sparkling red all the way from Italy. I don't know if Cupcake is really coming from Italy. I do know this is the this is the vineyard that Carrie drinks on Homeland. I didn't this know really that. Intense woman prefers cupcake. cupcake Chardonnay. That's weird. I also She's have their red velvet, rack. which sounds like cake, but is actually just a red blend. They should have come up with a fun name for this one that's cake related. They should have, like you know, confetti. Oh wow, that would have been perfect. Funfetti. <laughs> funfetti. Funfetti. It's a sparkling red. By the way, uh, cheesecake picture is my favorite term for a uh, little flirtatious dirty picture a like, cheesecake picture yeah i, I don't love know what that, that means phrase. it's like when you send someone a sexy picture but like sexy how like a nudie pic yeah like a nudie pic or maybe you've got your hands over your nipples <laughs> why are so you calling people, it a cheesecake pic people call them cheesecake photos it's like why? an old-timey term i don't know because it's thick and rich <laughs> with a graham cracker crust like a cock no <laughs> yes I would love it if Cox had graham cracker crust. I mean, like, not crust. I, I take crust back, but, like, maybe tasted vaguely of graham, graham crackers. crackers. <laughs> anyway, off topic. Let's talk about our heroine. Just dip your wiener in some crumbled up graham crackers yeah. and butter. Yeah, just, let's just do it where, once. <laughs> let's just see what happens. Let, like, let, let's see where the night goes. For heaven's sake, when was the last time you groomed yourself for your partner? Dip your wiener... Because it's got to be flaccid. We need to have it. But if you're a grower, not a shower, you know what I mean? Like, you have to be a look craggy. Don't let it dry. Like, keep a mist, like, keep a spray bottle of clarified butter and keep spraying it throughout the night. Just be like, I've got to go to the little boys' room. And then give it a little. It would make me feel differently about blowjobs. <laughs> you can send all cheesecake photos to womancemail at gmail.com. Please be judicious. Please be judicious with your cheesecake photos. And regardless of what you say in the body of the email, we will post them to our Instagram at womance. <laughs> Good plug. Yeah, that was great. Let's talk about our heroine. (laughs) Okay. Elizabeth Wyndham. Elizabeth Wyndham. She's into libraries. She does like books. She's into libraries specifically. Yes. She likes lending libraries. That's her little pet project. Her pet project. Again, working class, weird conundrum here. She wants to create lending libraries throughout Wales because she genuinely believes that education is the only way to progress and Mm -hmm. she wants to educate the poor masses. Yeah. Which is actually a fascinating topic to address for a heroine in a romance novel. But also she's a little bit on the shelf. Mm -hmm. She's had five or six seasons. And so she goes to this lavish house party with her younger sister sister Charlotte being thrown by Julian Haverford with money that is not his. So Charlotte and Elizabeth are Mm -hmm. both on the shelf. Yes. 
and largely by choice. Yes. And I understand the previous two novels in this mm-hmm. series talked about their other two sisters mm-hmm. who were not on the shelf. Not in the same way, certainly. And because their other two sisters are married is mm-hmm. partially why yes. they're on the shelf. So I just think that's a really interesting choice to start off your romance series with like your typical young lady falling in love, whatever, and then go into the spinster yeah. make good. Totally. Also, uh, I want to talk specifically about Elizabeth's sexuality in this one. Yeah, because she's not a virgin. She is explicitly not so. She like gives her number to the guy before they bone. And which, is which is more so... than one. Yeah, it's two or three. I don't know. It's two. It's two. Um, and they actually share their first time stories, which is fun. But that also felt like very modern. Yeah. Like a Impossibly very, modern, in And, like, fact. a very relatable way of, like, feeling out a situation. Yeah, and she was so frank about it. And, like, that's one of the things that was really beautiful about this novel is that Julian and Elizabeth meet, and she's like, I'm not trying to bone you or marry you because I'm on the shelf and I've got plans for the lending library. And he's like, oh, how refreshing to meet a woman who doesn't want my title. Yeah, which is so romance novel Yeah, it totally is. It's, it's like, romance. oh, you don't want me of course or you she, want me for me. She has the privilege if she was put on the shelf she'd still live a very nice life and she's just as titled as he is so who gives a hoot what right who gives a hoot what um but yeah I do I also think it's interesting that she wasn't even apprehensive about sharing her sexual history with him and no she it came had, out very she, naturally they both went into it like eyes open with the assumption that the other person wasn't you know pure as the driven snow. Yeah, and I think that's really uncommon for the genre, but maybe less common now. This isn't the first time we've read a romance novel Mm -hmm. where our lady hasn't been pure. And I think that's really nice about the genre being so flexible and that it's constantly responding to the moment that it's in. And also the fact that Julian's like, I'm glad that you're not a virgin because it means that we can enjoy ourselves Mm -hmm. in my weird adorable sanctum, which is in a tower. Mm -hmm. Dear listeners. It's in a tower. It's a room full of books but mm-hmm. he adds some fresh flowers. He gives her mm-hmm. a lovely Afghan throw. Yeah, so she can read her books in solitude at this three-week house party that's interminable with like 25 people. That's I love to throw a party. That lasted for three weeks. And then I like the thought of throwing a party for three weeks mm-hmm. with the explicit idea of like, I'm trying to get people to hook up, but not hook up. To get married. To get married, yeah. but not hook up. Yeah. And, you, and it's a personal responsibility for me if they finger each other and get caught. Yeah, because Forget like that. Yeah. I left that's like a ton of pressure. But also like house parties then were dicey because there's so many darkened corners in this book. There's so many like, like men castle, lurking around. A castle seems like a really old castle seems like yeah. the worst place to have one of these parties. If you're trying to control the sexuality of your guests. Open floor plans only. Yeah. Let's see your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Open Rad floor born. Oh, oh my god, is that a haiku? Open floor plans. Mm. Let me see your hands. <laughs> Not quite. That's five and five. What is it? What is the haiku? Five, seven, five. Let me see those hands. Mister. Mister. That's the middle part. So now you need another one. Five. Five. This party sucks. (laughs) That's not how sucks works, but yes. (laughs) This party. Mm -hmm. Blows chunks. Blows chunks. That's great. Perfect. We did a beautiful (laughs) Uh, yeah. So the sexuality in this is rather explicit. Yeah, but nothing happens. They don't, I mean, like, they don't have any, like, big, I mean, to-dos, kerfuffle. No, there's no, there's no whiff of scandal. In fact, the scandal is all about economy in this and not about sexuality. Except for that nouveau riche brute tells his... Sherburn. Sherburn. Sherbert. 
tells his, his <laughs> Lucas his fella his butler mm-hmm. that he's gonna report that he saw Elizabeth leaving Haverford's uh, apartment. No, Elizabeth was leaving Wyndham's apartments. Wyndham is her last name. No. Oh. Damn it. It's too Julian. many last names. It's too many last names. Here's the Windham, thing. Windham left Haverford's apartments and Sherburn saw it and he was going to report them. And his butler's like, you're a bad person. That's I right. quit. Oh God, the butler. That scene is so good. Okay, let's like, let's talk about this name thing in particular because your frustrations are well taken. And here's <laughs> the thing about Regency romance, like, and the way in which the historical romance situates itself in fact, in uh-huh. a way that I think is really interesting. So like, When you are the son of a duke, you have a courtesy title, like Earl of whatever, like Earl of Islay, let's say. And so when your father dies, you then take on the Duke of Haverford. Mm -hmm. But like you don't get called by your name anymore or even your courtesy title, which is what you've had since you were born. Mm -hmm. You then have to take up the name of Haverford and that's what your friends call you. That's what your wife calls you in public. You lose your identity every time your title shifts. So like... He's Haverford. That's what everybody calls him. That's what the villain calls him. That's what his friends call him. His sister calls him Julian by his name. But when Lady Wyndham, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, first meets him, he's Haverford. And he, in fact, he's like Duke blah, 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 blah of the Haverford Haverfords of Wales. Yeah. You know? So, like, the way in which historical romances hewn so closely to the strictures of a primogenitor aristocracy. Yeah is weird. Mm -hmm. Their names change all the goddamn time and everybody is addressed by their titles. Yeah, it's exhausting. I mean... Keeping track of it is hard. It's hard. And I just think like Wyndham, Sherborne, and Haverford sounds so similar to me. They're all very British. They're all... Yeah, and I'm just like, I... Like, people have different sounding last names. In America. Yeah, in America. I like to be in America. Different sounding last names in America. Nation of immigrants. No character confusion in America. If only we were free in America. We're not free here either. I know. We're all... (laughs) There's no escape. (laughs) No escape. Speaking of lack of freedom, the English language is explicitly pointed out to be a language of access and a barrier to certain peoples in this book. Specifically, Griffin. Okay, listeners, we do have to talk about a very interesting part of this book. It's not just that they speak Welsh, even though the book just writes it in English and says they spoke Welsh. Right, which is nice and successful. Which is nice, yeah. For those of us who don't read or speak speak Welsh. Welsh. But our hero, Julian, and his sister, who has to get married, uh, Glennis, have a younger brother who lives on a cottage with 10 acres. On the property. On the property. And his name is Griffin. He was born with his umbilical cord around his neck. Yep. And... He has a kind of debility in the novel that the novel deals really carefully with. And the characters deal really carefully with it. It's not like whatever the learning accessibility that Griffin has, he's like topped out at like the age of 14 is like how it's described. And like, I don't know about you, Morgan, but this is the first time that mental capacity has ever been (coughs) dealt with in a romance novel for me. Yeah. Well, I've read way less than you. Okay. And so it's definitely the first time. So kudos to Grace Burroughs for bringing up mental capacity. Yeah. Also like that Totally would have happened. We're talking about blue bloods in England. They were intermarried in a way that was like, you know, not great for the lines. 
or the lineage. There is kind of a debate about whether or not Haverford is trying to keep his brother a secret. Right. Because he doesn't let him come to the ball. Right. Because he thinks his brother is also incredibly handsome and Mm -hmm. has already fathered an illegitimate child, which Haverford's friend is raising in his house. Yeah. She's his ward. And, like, the way that that happened is described exactly as it should have been. Like, this woman took advantage of Haverford's spare, his younger brother, who didn't have the real capacity to consent. Mm -hmm. And she is painted as the worst kind of abuser. Yeah, except he has another love interest who we are meant to believe is, like, perfect for him. Biddy Bowen. Biddy Bowen, who is his housekeeper, and she makes really good shortbread. Which did sound really delicious. I know. This book made me so hungry for shortbread. Me too. I mean, like, this book reminded me of my constant state of hunger for shortbread. It's probably more accurate. What do we do with the Biddy Bowen? Obviously, like, she should not kiss him, and she should not be like, I love you. And if it's bad for the one woman to do it, it's bad for this woman to do it. Except Biddy Bowen isn't interested in whatever fortune that he may or may not have, right? Like, that's yeah. how it's disguised. That's how it's disguised. But I just, I don't know. I think it's weird that he finds happiness with the help. I think that's a weird discussion mm-hmm. of class in this moment. Yeah. That made me feel strangely uncomfortable. Yeah, that's when it kind of felt, like, when it first, when the fir- character first appears, I was like, what am I supposed to do What am do I supposed with to this? do with Griffin? And then it became clear, like, he provides a connection. He gets gave Elizabeth more depth than she had originally because she starts teaching him English words and learning Welsh words from him. They have this great tete-a-tete and relationship and exchange. And so you're like, oh, Elizabeth's a cool person. And you find out that his brother's a cool person via Griffin. But doesn't that kind of make him a prop anyways? But then the way they give him agency kind of breaks the problem of Griffin in its own way. I just, I mean, it's complicated, but I guess human beings are complicated. Totally. And like the whole idea of like the way in which class is already working in this novel is super complicated. And so like Griffin isn't living like the spare of a duke because he can't and uh-huh. like that's made very clear but then if he can't live in the capacity as the spare of a duke what capacity can he live in and like mm-hmm. the book is very interested in making sure that griffin has capacity and choice and consent <laughs> but the way in which people around him interact with that capacity is very strange and like really yeah. uneven really uneven i think is the thing mm-hmm. and at first whenever julian haverford our hero finds out that griffin is in a romantic relationship with his housekeeper he freaks out and it's not because he's like this is inappropriate because of your mental capabilities or anything like that he's like this is inappropriate because she obviously wants you for your money and also you're my spare and he kind of reverts to this idea of hierarchy and oh totally he's like help. yeah she works for you not yeah. only that but he's then, like griffin you're taking advantage yeah and then elizabeth's kindness towards biddy mm-hmm. which is perceived as like generosity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like her willingness to like Plummet, kind of. Like, she, like, helps Biddy carry a tray of cookies. Yep. Damn it, I want some shortbread. Dude, preach. But, like, 
kind of also problematizes Elizabeth's kindness because originally I was like, oh, it's genuine with Griffin, but then whenever it's with Biddy, whenever it becomes about class, suddenly it's like I think that's one of she's the lowering herself. Like it's less of an exchange than it is with Griffin because yeah. she's learning from Griffin. Griffin's learning from her. Right. With Biddy, it's like she's doing Biddy a favor. Yeah, and I think like that's an interesting thing in general about femininity and masculinity and the way it's constructed in romance novels, where like women are often, if not always, bridge builders mm-hmm. across class, across mm-hmm. race. Not only is Elizabeth on the <laughs> shelf, right? So she's like absented herself from a class structure very very relationally Mm -hmm. but she's also had sex with two dudes that she's talking explicitly about Mm -hmm. which further absents her from the structure that she's already in so in some ways like elizabeth is functioning as though she has no class even though that's impossible to be true um and so that way in her interactions with biddy do continue to feel natural yeah but like she also is always exerting her class on other people she exerts her class on julian's sister glennis yeah. She exerts Glennis. her privilege on poor Glennis because Glennis doesn't know how a house party works. And Elizabeth just kind of sweeps in and takes over and but starts like, managing their finances really without... Without anybody's permission. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah. But so like poor Glennis, who's never thrown a house party, her mother died in childbirth giving mm-hmm. birth to Griffin. Uh-huh. And she's been motherless all this time and doesn't know how to throw a house party, is trying to doesn't get herself... Does, yeah, is trying to get herself married so that she can stop being a burden to her beloved older brother Julian. Mm-hmm. And like doesn't know how much... Any anything costs or the way in which stuff is supposed to work. And then we find out through the finances that they're also being wrung dry by every single person in the parish because of the villain, Lucas Sherborne. Because of his personal grudge with them. So he's yeah. running them into higher debts on purpose. It's like, not really a personal grudge, though, because he's mad at all of the aristocracy. Yeah, but it's like, it's focused on the Haverfords specifically. They're an avatar for... They're an avatar for aristocracy in general, but also it's like hyper-focused on the idea that Julian doesn't want the mines, and the mines are something that Lucas wants to expand in the district so that mm-hmm. he can make more money. Yeah. And join the aristocracy. Yeah. He's just trying to get that title. Yeah. Because he wants to marry Glennis. Yeah. He's a social climber, which is hilarious because of the way in which he rails at the aristocracy. Anyway, like all of that's really funny. Yes. Elizabeth comes in and you say exerts her privilege. I say that she capitalizes on it for others. I don't think she's using it to hurt Glennis. I don't think she's using it to hurt Haverford. I I think she's even really using it to hurt Biddy. I think she's like leveraging her privilege as an ally maybe should. But if... In the neatness of a romance novel, it's not problematic because we get the perspective of Biddy being so gracious and Glennis being so gracious and all of this. But I think if she came swanning into your house party and took your bills and started telling you how to run your business, how would you feel? If I felt... I would feel small. I would be reminded of the fact that I've never had a mother. (laughs) I would, you know? Yeah. It would would hurt me. I I don't think she goes through it with a tenderness towards the other people. I think she has the same sense that Julian has throughout the novel, which is like, as a member of the nobility, I am noble in what I do. Here is how I am noble, as opposed to like, how do other people feel? But of course, right, that's the great thing about a romance novel is that it's all nice and tidy. Yeah, like Glennis is grateful. Yeah, Glennis is grateful. Biddy is grateful. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that 
And they don't need to exist outside of their gratitude. Well. But people in real life do exist outside of their gratitude. Or could have, like, more than one emotion about a thing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Like, Glennis could easily feel shamed and gratitude at the same time. But, like, what I mean is, like, Glennis's gratitude in the novel serves to tell us... That Elizabeth is a good, good person. person. Yeah, totally. That's a lot. This book is doing a lot. It's dealing on a <laughs> lot of different things. It's like trading on a lot of different spaces. Uh, let's talk about the sex scenes. Mm. What was your favorite sex scene? You know, I remember liking the sex scenes, but I can't remember one that I particularly enjoyed. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with mine then. Cunnilingus mm, on the parapets. So one of the things about house parties, dear listeners, dear readers, is that you have to have a series of entertainments for your guests. And one of the things that poor Glennis makes them all do is have this like kite thing on the lawn where everybody flies kites for four hours. And it's like super fucking boring, but also like, okay, whatever, what are you going to do? Anyway, somebody gets their kite caught on the castle and Julian and Elizabeth go up to get it. And it's like this beautiful sweeping overlook. They're swelling music and like they catch the thing and they're looking at the grotesques and like the way in which this castle is both beautiful and crumbling. And he's like, I have to have you. Not only do I have to have you, but I have to have you in this really specific way that your two other paramours have not done for you. And I'm going to go down on you with this like blazing blue sky and like this crumbling castle that is both me and not me. And I'm like going to give you this gift and like you're just going to take it. That was crazy sexy. I think he fingers her. I thought he fingered her. I didn't think he went down on her. Oh, maybe not. Am I remembering that wrong? He definitely does something sexy up there. I mean, they do sexy stuff up there, but I remember thinking like, oh, this would be nice. Nice, but it's kind of cold up there. My... Yeah, and like she does make the point of like it's her first ever orgasm, which mm-hmm. I kind of would have liked it better if it wasn't. And if she'd gone with the expectation of coming. I wish someone in one of these historical romances wouldn't be surprised by their orgasm. I think women are always surprised by their orgasms. We should have an expectation. I was watching this uh slut ever for vice media and Mm -hmm. she was like why aren't there happy ending massages for women and so she goes seeking it out and she finds this sex therapist he's like does erotic massage and she's like okay so you're gonna make me come and he was like i think you're setting yourself up for disappointment and i was like this is what's wrong with third wave feminism like people were like take responsibility for your own orgasm so this guy can quit worrying about it you know what i mean And then she goes on a date with a male escort and she's like, okay, so are we definitely going to have sex at the end of this? He's like, I don't know. We'll see how things go. And she's like, okay, but like without concern about the legal ramifications, you're going to have sex with me. And he was like, no, we'll see how it goes. She's like, so I have to court you. I'm paying you and I have to court you. And he was like, yeah, I think that's nice. It's more about an emotional connection, just taking care of each other. And she's like, so I'm not going to get a guaranteed orgasm out of this. And he was like, no. Like a guy goes in for a happy ending massage. It's basically guaranteed. You know why this is. It's because we all bow down before the ultimate, which is the male pleasure in sex. Yeah. And women's pleasure is great, but it's so mysterious. It's hard they, to unlock. They say, they, add, they say the word mysterious, like it's somehow value added, but mm-hmm. really they're saying like, probably not gonna happen. Yeah. Also maybe like, does it happen? I love those discussions <laughs> where like, it's like, orgasms aren't real. Yeah. And it really drives me crazy when people are 
they're like, women should take responsibility for their own orgasms. It's like, yeah, when they're by themselves, but like, if you're with someone else, they should be able to put in a little effort. Like, if I told a guy, like, I'm going to give you a hand job, and then I just started flicking his penis back and forth, <laughs> and he was like, this doesn't work for me, and I'd be like, no, take responsibility for your own orgasm. So this is like, Why work, with me. Work, work with me. Work with me. <laughs> Lay back and enjoy it. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Close your eyes and think of England. It's the same thing. Well, I mean, the world's a lot more nuanced than that, but it's basically the same thing. Yeah, I agree. So anyways, I wish women were entitled to come to the table with the expectation that they were going to come and that they would not have to do it for themselves as well. I think that's fine to talk about in our current moment, but for a historical novel that takes place in, like, 1815. Why not? She's already volunteering the information that she's not a virgin. The reason why she had sex with those people is because she was curious, right? Like, she was satisfying this, like, discussion about it. And they were both bad at it, which I think also is, like, really true and really earnest. Not everybody's good at sex. Especially if you're not concerned about your partner. Especially if you haven't done it a lot and are nervous to talk. Oh, but that brings me to another point in this novel, Mm -hmm. which really I loved. I should talk about the sexiest part. Yeah. What I found to be the sexiest part as well, which I, I highlighted... Um, so it, it is one of the moments in the, um, in the special room, in the mm-hmm. book room, mm-hmm. and he comes to visit her during the day. I think it's the first time they have, what do we call it? Reproductive. Uh, yeah. Reproductive, uh, heteronormative copulation. <laughs> reproductive heteronormative copulation. It's the first time they do that. P and V. I really liked that. She fondled and caressed every inch of him, lingering in odd locations, the turn of his hip, the soft indentation of his elbow, the arch mm-hmm. of his eyebrows. Her touch was inquisitive, gentle, and luscious. I really like the idea of being touched in unexpected places. Mm -hmm. I think it's nice. I like having my eyebrows stroked. Mm -hmm. I agree. If you see me on the street, just come up and get my eyebrow a little tickle. It'll make my day. (laughs) But then I I also want to... I love that word, luscious. In in terms of a man, not in terms of like a woman and her body. It's like a way of saying that she's chubby. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of the female orgasm. Mm-hmm. They were having sex. Mm-hmm. The physical sensations were stupendous <laughs> in their intensity, shuddering through him until he draped over Elizabeth a blanket of replete masculinity. Mm. I am undone, he murmured, kissing her ear. She stroked his hair, which he took as confirmation of her own undoneness. She, she stroked his undone? hair, and he's like, she's good. Was she also undone? She stroked his hair, so she has to be, right? Was she in the text, though? Like, do they go on? I don't know. No. They lay together, breathing in a reciprocal rhythm, cooling. <laughs> I love it when they're cooling, like like baked cupcakes just yeah. have to wait on the rack. She never brings it up, yeah. He tells her to sleep. Whatever, she totally had an orgasm right before that. It's a romance novel, so we can assume, <laughs> but you can't just be like, she stroked his hair, so he was like, she's taken care of. If your man finishes without taking care of you first... Don't stroke his hair. Don't stroke his hair. Let him know. That is a nonverbal confirmation that you are done, as per Grace Burroughs in a romance novel called No Other Duke Will Do. I just thought that was bullshit. I was like, you can't be 
like, oh, cool, good. I was worried. worried. The fact that you didn't react at all kind of made me feel like maybe you you didn't come, but since you pet my head, I can now tell. Since you gave me an old, that'll do pig, (laughs) pat on the head, now I know that you're cool, so we're good. Uh, I guess go to sleep now. See you later. Kind of seems like you don't like Julian. Do you know what I think? I wish, no, I'm just like now I'm like riffing on romance novels generally. I wish they would like give the lady their kerchief to wipe their jism off. (laughs) Because like this book explicitly talks about him coming on her stomach. Yeah, so she doesn't get pregnant. And then her body just reabsorbs it, I guess. That is not what happens. Because they don't talk about what happens. Here's the thing. There are precious few romance novels that I've ever read that talk about the scene in which a man will go get a warm washcloth or whatever. Yeah. It's not a super common trope. It's like That novella we read, they talked about it. Yes, they did. There was also a much more explicit book than this. But I think, like, there's something in that, right? Where there's something about the idea of, like, taking care of your corporeal person in a way yeah. that has to do with something gross or bodily like that. Yeah. Like, breaks it in a way. And, like, I don't find that to be true. I think the idea of a man, yeah. like, getting up from feeling replete and cooling, like, a cupcake on a rack. And, like, <laughs> getting up to get a washcloth to, like, make sure that you don't. Or, like, the moment where there's – it's another one. Maybe it's a different Ruthie Knox book. But, like, there's a wet spot in the bed. And he's yeah. like, you don't want to sleep in that and like he pushes her off of it and like takes the wet spot for himself and I was like oh such a man I think so too well I think also in this moment I've been listening to oh my god it was on NPR this the other morning and they were like yeah we've got to talk about how like asking for consent can be sexy it doesn't necessarily have to be a yes or no thing and I was like except yes or no consent can be sexy it's demonstrated in these romance novels all the time and so why can't they say like it has to go somewhere you know what I mean yeah you You've been really uh, frank about your personal experiences <laughs> on this podcast. And I want to be frank about a personal experience. I was frankly shocked by the fact that, like, semen just falls out of you. Semen falls out of you. <laughs> it does. It does. It, it does. I remember distinctly from middle school sex ed, like, thinking to myself, like, well, where does it go? And the textbook had this really neat, it was like, and the woman reabsorbs the <laughs> excess. What? Yeah. What? Like, my, I, just, I was just like, oh, it's where just, did like, you spongy. Get? And so it just, like, <laughs> it goes away. But no, of no, course not. Of course not. You go and you pee afterwards and you hear this ridiculous <laughs> plop. <laughs> oh god you totally do <laughs> or like this uh oh can we talk about peeing after sex for a moment just like really briefly and like how it like really 100% like ruins the mood but if like you don't get up after like a certain like 27 second minute of cuddling and pee like I feel like I'm doing myself harm yeah you get a freaking UTI yeah it's, and it, it's so fast and I'm like I really want to cuddle too and then like you, you might know, as well skip the bathroom walk straight to Walgreens and get yourself a gallon <laughs> cranberry, of cranberry juice. juice. It's so true though and it like it takes all of the romance out of it and it's like it's a hundred percent my responsibility and I hate that. Like, and it takes you back into your yeah. body in a really like functional way. Yeah. Like, oh, gotta do something about this. <laughs> and if I don't I will pay for it later. Yeah. With my body. Yeah. I'll make myself sick. Yeah. If I don't do this. 
Romance um, novels never talk about and that And also, moment. like, I hate holidays like New Year's Eve or St. Patrick's Day where you feel all of this pressure to have fun. Mm-hmm. I hate peeing after sex because I feel so much pressure to be able to pee. Well, that's the thing. Like, you have to hit that golden moment, right? Like, if you have, you have to drink water yeah. before you have sex and copulate so that you can pee, but your bladder can't be so full that it's uncomfortable when yeah. you're having sex. Yeah. Also, like, if the duration of sex is longer than you maybe anticipated, like, everything becomes complicated. Yeah. And, like, then you have to drink more water. Yeah. And, like, men's bodies, they, like, clamp down on the urine part whenever they have an erection. Or not when they have an erection, but when they're about to have an orgasm. Yep. Not true for women. Nope, not true. Not at all. Anyway, going back to... You're right. Romance novels don't deal with the body that in in like its functional moments. Yeah. And when they do, it's it's striking, like in that novella that we read. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they don't deal with that here. Yeah. But I think, like you said, there's a way to make it romantic. Just like there's mm-hmm. a way to get yes, no consent that is romantic totally. and sexy. Yeah. So that is was my little rant. Is this what was this a womance or a no man's? What was the weirdest part for you? Mm. For me, it was the overuse of the word kisses. <laughs> that's funny that that's the weirdest part for you. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Kisses? Kisses. <laughs> she said it like a million times in the book. They were kissing a lot. She was like, she was thinking about his kisses. Yeah. Why not say she was thinking about his kiss? Just making it singular <laughs> makes it so much more mature. Because she was thinking about all of the kisses he'd given her. Just thinking about like the general idea, the royal kiss, not the like... Little kisses. Anyway, the weirdest part. She for might me. as well say schmooches. Schmooches. I love schmooching. Um, I yeah, I a hundred percent don't know what to do with the um, Griffin. Griffin was hard in a couple of interesting ways, but I also like really applaud Grace Burroughs for taking yeah. a risky move and like sure. you know. So in that way, like I I'm I'm down to see what was happening there and talk about like different kinds of capacities and different kinds of loves. I think that's like an important thing that romance. Really, it has a blindfold, too. If it has a blindfold to jizz, it certainly has a blindfold to, like, different kinds of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I'm like, I'm going to go ahead and applaud you, Grace Burroughs. I think this is really great. Round of applause. Um, the thing I found weirdest was the villain, Shoreborn, and knowing that he's going to be the hero in the next book that comes out on March mm, 6th. Yeah. Like, or is he? <laughs> he is. <laughs> or... Is he? And I think it's like, it's the class. It's the way in which class was working in this book that I found really mm. hard to navigate in very particular ways. Because I've been thinking a lot about class just like in our own lives and like how capitalism is really awful. And like this idea that like you get to have credit mm-hmm. for hundreds of years if your mm-hmm. father had a title. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Sherborne doesn't get that kind of credit. Mm-hmm. And like, and you know, we're all living in a moments and I'm paying off my student loans. And I'm like, you know, if my dad's last name started with a K and ended in entity, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have the kinds of loans that I have. Yeah. And like the way in which the world continues to be true, even though it's not yeah. 1815. And like, yeah. that's what's so atemporal about these romance novels. It's like Julian is under dire straits, no question. Like yeah. he's in a moment of real vulnerability and precarity, but the other part of it is he's not, and not in the way that Sherborne is and not in the way that his servants are when they're about to be turned out of their house and home, you know? Mm. And like, that's the other part of this. It's like that part of this book was never well answered for me. Yeah. 
You know, the other day I was listening to a podcast and like two people from the East Coast and they started talking about the Midwest and how this guy who directed this movie could have no understanding of the Midwest and how he got the Midwest so wrong because he depicted decent, thoughtful people in the Midwest was kind of their thing. And I was like, and I became immediately resentful. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, this is kind of the problem. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we can say like, how can we understand the Trump voter and like this whole like part of America that has felt silenced, however true or untrue it is, you know, has felt pushed down. And I was always like, yeah, it's, it sucks that those people have felt silenced and ignored. And then I immediately became super resentful of the entire population who live on either of the coasts because these people were speaking out. At me. Yeah, I think romance novels do a weird do a weird turn to like that kind of question, the way in which like communities are talked about and the way in which class is talked about. Yeah. And like Or the fact that like Elizabeth in this novel, she is resentful of the townspeople because they charge mm-hmm. him so much. Mm-hmm. And he says, Don't be resentful of them. That's like a living amount of money and I'm willing to pay it. Because right. I want because I, stay. I want this to stay in nice neighborhood. Basically. Right. Basically. That's a hundred percent what he says and like that's a moment of like chastising her for like a very particular kind of capitalist frugality or like a kind of assumption like they're bad people for not for charging me this much charging him this much yeah yeah and he's like no they deserve to have a living wage for the services that they provide and i want to make sure that everybody can eat shortbread shortbread bitty bones shortbread Mm, delish bitty bones bread is short call it a romance i had so much fun reading it come on i know i know i kind of i was a little bit of a negative nancy but i really liked it i did too i like the kite i like the kite thing too and the boating yeah the boating was adorable well what events would you plan you have people staying with you for three weeks what activities lawn bowling obviously lawn bowling good one we'd have musicals everyone oh fuck we'd do karaoke so hard at my house parties i like it whenever they write and perform their own play yeah i think that's really good i also like it when they play like whatever the version of like regency charades is Mm -hmm. i like it when they walk around rooms when it's raining out yeah as a like, just like that they all eat together all of their meals. Yeah. Can you imagine? You know what? Honestly, in this day and age, so much of your time would be taken up cooking together. Yeah. That's a nice thing about not having a staff. Yeah. You get to do that fun stuff. And it is fun to cook together. Yeah. Yeah. My mom comes. She likes to clean my house and rearrange my throw pillows. My mom does the same thing. She arranges all of my pots differently. <laughs> And she's like, it's more efficient this way. Like, for like, you. <laughs> Thanks, mom, for doing all of the cooking and making spinach and egg souffle, dad. <laughs> yum, souffle. Dude, yum. it's so good. My parents are great. Love you, mom and dad. Parents are great. Love you, mom and dad. I mean, we like our parents. We do. Some parents suck. That's true. We're really lucky. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, on that positive note, do you think it's a romance or... Oh, yeah. Unequivocally. Romance. This is this is a romance. Womance for me. Womance. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys, gang, ladies, people beyond the binary. Humans. Uh, Please loosen your stays, but never your principles. Holla. (laughs) Hey, folks, it's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman, and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more romance? 
Well, chin up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.